Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between actor, activist, and author Alan Cumming and Abigail Pogerman, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. Aside from his Tony Award-winning run in the Broadway musical Cabaret, audiences know Alan Cumming as the political maverick Eli Gold on CBS's The Good Wife, for which he received Golden Globe and Emmy Award nominations. In his talk with Abigail Pogrebin, Alan Cumming discusses his work in his revelatory New York Times bestselling memoir, Not My Father's Son. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on May 6, 2015. Everybody, this is definitely as jam-packed as we've been. I mean, everything is sold out, but not this fast. I feel like I'm done just having you come out here. <laughs> um, thank you all for being here. Obviously, it's been a treat to prepare for this because um, you're all fans, and I'm a huge fan. Um, but I, with everything that Alan does, I didn't know that he was a writer. I'm not sure if you knew you were a writer. Did you know you were a writer before? I knew you were- I was a writer, yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've written things over the years. This right. is, this is the, only the second book I've done. But but in terms of, was that part of your, when, when you were growing up, was that one of your strengths in school? Were you known that way? Yeah. And actually, I, when I, um, I remember when, you know, at school you had to say what you wanted to be when you filled in the forms or which subjects you were going to take. And I wanted to be an actor or a journalist. And actually, before I went to drama school, I worked on a magazine in this publishing company in Scotland for a year. What was so the name of it? The you magazine know? was called Tops. Tops is Tops for pop and TV. <laughs> And I and I wrote the horoscopes for the um, for the evening. Just Telegraph. out of your imagination. Yeah, totally. I just made them up. And uh, I like. Well, I'd look at magazines and choose. I'd say, you know, uh, Pluto is re-entering your sphere, so goodwill will abound. Things like that. That's I always tried to make it nice so that I always imagined there was a little old lady who lived alone with a cat. That was my kind of model of who was reading this. Try and be nice to her. <laughs> Not that you have a cat. I don't. Graduates. I'm allergic to cats. Yeah. Um, you, but you didn't set out. You weren't like jonesing to write a celebrity book. And people had mentioned to you, you should write one. You should write one. You've got great stories. Tell me why that actually wasn't attractive to you at first. I, I, I mean, I, I think this. The, 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 we live in a culture that is so obs- uh, celebrity obsessed, and I think that. There's something really shabby about just, I mean, like anyone who tells stories in the workplace, I think that's basically what one of those books is, you know, just telling mean stories about people or who you've slept with or who slept with who. I don't really think that's, that doesn't interest me. I mean, I, I, I love a good gossip, but I don't necessarily want to share that with millions of people. I don't think that's very honorable. And I found it interesting when I did want to, I, you know, before this thing happened to me in my life that I wrote the book about. I did want to write some another book and make it more about my 
th- my life and about, but but I wanted to write about kind of lessons I'd learned from the life I've had and, you know, interesting things that happened to me and, 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 but not just kind of salacious gossip. And I found I met some resistance. Um, well, you know, it was over a, a few years, many years ago, I actually sort of mooted this idea and people kind of wanted steering me towards the more celebrity tell-all thing. And so I just put the idea to bed and, and then I kind of, a few years later, I thought I would like to write some of my life and I've, you know, I'm older now and I've learned things and, and then boing, you know, this oh. the summer of 2010 happened and I, and I thought in a funny way, you know, I've, I've done various things where I've talked about, I've written things like my first novel, my first book was a novel that was kind of a thinly veiled memoir and I've written a f- film, you know, the anniversary party that I wrote with Jennifer Jason Lee was kind of about characters that were very similar to us and in real life. And so I've been kind of um, over the years understanding that the more you reveal about yourself and in your work, the more fascinating it is to people without making it, you know, without being salacious. And so in a funny sort of way, I thought if I'm going to write something about my life, um, then this thing that happened is, you know, it is the most honest and authentic thing I could write about. And just to pick up on the word honest, because you've talked in some interviews I've seen about how you knew if you were going to do it, you had to really be as honest, as bare as possible, as naked, or it wasn't going to really work. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I, I mean, should I tell the sort of... Yeah. So, so basically, in 2010, I was asked by the BBC to do this t- TV show called Who Do You Think You Are? And they it's a thing where they trace your genealogy and they find out, you know, fascinating surprises about one of your ancestors and um, the celebrity car- cries and then, you know, that's the end. And, uh, and I had, uh, there was a mystery in my family, which is my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, had died in Malaysia. And my mum had told me it was a shooting accident and... and uh, and, and, but, and he, but he'd never come back after the war. He'd never come back to live with my granny and my and his four children. And I could never, I could never quite work it out. And it was a long, he died, you know, in 1951, long before I was born. And so anyway, so I, the BBC thing was going to be a, a way for me to find out this mystery and to kind of explain something for my mom and to use my celebrity in a, in a really great way to give her this gift of knowledge, I thought. And... <laughs> Um, and so I said yes to that, and we, and in the course of the that summer, you know, I find out some incredible things about my grandfather. And so the book is about that. Uh, it, 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 the sort of denouement of his story is that I, he didn't, he did die in a shooting accident, but he died playing Russian roulette in Malaysia. Yeah, and he was separated from my granny, and one of my uncles was not his son, and all this stuff that was kind of, and he was this big hero, and he, then he obviously had, you know kind of crashed and had PTSD about an incident that happened in Burma. So he was a very damaged soul. And then the, just before I was about to start filming that, I was in London to, to, to start. And my father, who I'd not seen for 16 years, um, via my brother, told me that I wasn't his son. And so I was filming this TV show about this, you know, absent, dead and sad and damaged grandfather whilst dealing with the fact that... Um, my father told me this at the same time. So, so in a way, and, and after it was finished, after the, that summer was over, a lot of the story didn't end because the book, as in the book, I, you know, as I was writing the book, the story was continuing. Other things happened and kind of still going on in a funny way. And I, but I felt that when I was telling people this story, because obviously I couldn't stop talking about it. It was the craziest thing that ever happened to me, this series of events. 
and the coincidences and the and I felt very I felt very kind of not similar, but I felt very in tune with my grandfather and that we both had great traumatic stress disorders in our lives. Mine was my father, who was very violent and as a child and his was, you know, the battles and being an orphan and being his family always being kind of away from him. So when I was telling the story to people, I felt that I, I realized that in the course of telling it, in order to make sense of it, I had to explain why, for example, my father, I hadn't seen him for 16 years and, and basically be very frank about the abuse that I'd suffered when I was a child and my brother had to. So that was really why it was, it was in order to make sense of the present, I had to be brutally frank about the past. And what I love about the structure of the book is that it isn't linear, that you are going back and forth and obviously we can follow it, but there's suspense built in. Was yeah. that, was that a very conscious decision to or was it that you're almost writing in real time? Um, no, it, it wasn't really, it wasn't because I was writing in real time, but I, I, I think it was actually because, because I told the story much, it kind of, it, it's actually quite nice. You know, I think I'm very into the oral tradition, <laughs> as it were, uh, <laughs> of, uh, storytelling and, but that too. And, uh, um, I learned from telling the story, how to structure it. And, you know, and, and when we tell stories, we, we do go back and forward in time and we, you know, and say, oh, blah, 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 and a little sidebar here. And so in a way, I, I, uh, the, the structure of the book came from me telling the story so much. And I really like that because I come from a country that's, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it has a long tradition of storytelling. And, uh, and it's a really important part of how people um, hold on to memories. So that was really, that was really what, um, and then of course, you know, I, I got into the groove of going back and forth and I got into the groove of this, my life being kind of like a thriller because it is kind of a thriller, the book, you know, it's like, you know, dun, 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 and then what's going to happen. And so, uh, but that then that became a bit weird. I thought, oh my God, my life is a thriller or what, you know, that, that part of my life is a thriller. So, but it has a happy ending. Can you take us back a little bit to what, just sort of the facts of your childhood where you were living, what your dad was doing. I grew up on a country estate in the east coast of Scotland, very, very remote and feudal. And and my father was the head forester on this estate, and we lived in a kind of big, rattly, cold house. Uh, and there was a sawmill yard, and there was a nursery where all the trees grew, and in, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And my father was, I think now, definitely mentally ill in some way, and or, you know, chemically imbalanced. I mean, it, it, at the time it was just, you know, he was just very, he was a tyrant and he was very, very violent to my brother and I and abusive and physically and emotionally. And um, it was, we lived in terror. My mom and my brother and I lived in absolute terror. Uh, and so in a way the, way, the way that we dealt with it, I think the way you do deal with people like that is to shut down and the best way is to just be completely nothing, like, like the nothing they, think you are and you try to just not enrage them and hope that you know and, and in a way you know that every situation I would come into with my dad as even as a little boy I would really have to sort of gauge where he was on the madness and violence scale and what I had to do to try and avoid it and so in a way I in one of the worst things about writing the book I realized that many of the traits that I have as an actor probably came from dealing with my father. What do you mean? Well, 
having to understand um, uh, 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 the energy of someone, having to withhold things about yourself to not enrage him or to or to pretend, you know, and to, but really it's mostly about judging a situation. Um, You've also talked about the listening, like you, you're really listening to the other person who's almost felt like you were gauging him very closely. Absolutely. You, you absolutely had to do that because you had to know how to behave and also know when it was coming, you know, how soon you, how long you had. But it wasn't like, it didn't sound like you could avoid it. It didn't sound, no. sound like you could head it off. But you're thinking, no, you can't, you couldn't avoid it. And, but it, you know, it didn't always happen, but it was, it was the terror of it, you know, almost as worse as the actual violence was the potential of it, the waiting for it. You've also said that he set up tasks that he knew you couldn't do. Mm. So, and then that would unleash his rage. Yeah, that was, that was where it was really kind of perverse actually was that he would, you know, we, we were all, my brother and I were put to work every weekend and evening sometimes and school holidays and you know there's a lot of people worked on the estate and my dad had seemed to have no kind of understanding of you know if you're eight you can't drive a tractor or you can't you know there's going to be if you you're not going to get all that shed cleaned and blah blah before lunchtime and so he would set impossible tasks and then hit me when I couldn't do them and I knew when I when he set me them, I wasn't going to be able to do it. So there was this weird mental torture that, and sometimes it would be tough. Like he did ask me to drive a tractor, and I was like, I can't drive a tractor. I've never driven a tractor. And he just shouted at me until I had to get on the tractor, and you know, obviously I crashed it into a hedge, and it was a disaster. And so things like that were really mental cruelty, and you know, it was really, as I say, I think I was. I mean, it's and now, obviously now it's easier to deal with it and understand it because I'm not in it. But I do, one of the good things about writing this book is, is my absolute belief that, you know, he was severely undiagnosed with some mental complaint. Did he ever acknowledge at the time that he was doing this? Was there ever any kind of verbal no. acknowledgement? No, I mean. And did your mom acknowledge it? Oh, yes. Yeah, my mom, you know, was living in terror and she tried to stop him hitting us and... She, I remember once actually, I think I remember this since the book, but she, one time she said, I remember when I was very, very young and I did all these bruises and he, and she said to him, you know, you're going to regret this when you're older. When these boys are older, you're going to regret this, that you behave to them in this way. And, uh, but I don't know if he did, you know, I don't, I didn't, I certainly didn't, as it was revealed in the book, when he came back into my life, aged, when I was aged 45, he didn't have any remorse. Okay. And he actually said to me, when he told me I wasn't his son and he said, you must have known. I was like, what? He went, you must have realized I, you weren't my, I was like, how would I know that? And he went, well, did you not notice we never bonded? I was like, yes. <laughs> but that was not my, you know, the first thing I was it, thought of. Was it equal to you and Tom on the receiving end or did you get the most of it? It was, uh, well, uh, I mean, it was equal in different ways, if you will. But, and then also what happened was that Tom's older than me, six years older than me, so that's my brother. So when he left, he left when I was like um, 13 or 14, he left home. Um, he was, he'd been you know, working, but he actually was still living at home until he was 20 or something when he got married. And then I was on my own, I was physically actually on my own in the house with my father, you know, my brother. Had, so that was, that was really hard. Those were the worst years because my brother was very, 
you know, he, he was de obviously deflected my father's rage because it was two of us, but also he was much more, you know, supportive. It seems your relationship with your brother is so strong in the book. Can you just talk about kind of what it was and what it's become because of this journey? Well, I think, in a, you know, we did, as I say, we shut down and we didn't talk about it. And over the years, we would, when we were both away from him, we would, and my mum, you know, left him and never, we would occasionally mention it. Usually in a kind of, ah, ha, ha, you know, our dad was crazy kind of thing. But then when I was 28, I had a sort of breakdown and I, it was totally about the fact that I hadn't, I was trying to become a father myself, actually. I think I had a lot to do with it. And I had forgot, I had just not dealt with, I'd repressed all these memories as, and Tom had too. And so basically my kind of, you know, falling off the, the scales a little bit, prompted all these memories to come back. And that was a very intense time for the two of us and brought us really close together because we kind of had spent this summer of just remembering things and talking to my mom about them and really re understanding how much of a, an effect our father's behavior had had on our whole beings and our whole, the people who we were. And it kind of made us reassess who we were and who we wanted to be because a lot of that was a product of our father, something, you know, that was not a very positive thing in our lives. So that was a very much, that was the kind of the start of when we really kind of, um, as adults, got incredibly close. And then we went to, went to confront my father. My mum my suggested it actually, and we did and um, told him, you know, what we knew and what we remembered. And I tried to ask him why, and it, it didn't go well. <laughs> Can you just talk about what you prepared? I had this little speech, it's in the book, I wrote it all down in case I, I was so nervous and I was in a very vulnerable state at the time, um, obviously, and I... When, what, what year was that? This was um, 1994, um, yeah, because I was 28 when I kind of flipped out and then, so yeah, just the year after that, and then uh, we... Uh, he didn't, you know, we, we kind of, all, at the end of it all, I mean, in a way it was this thing, it was a very important thing to do and a very great, uh, just as I'm feeling this wave of support from people who are so glad I've spoken out and s talked about this, I felt it was such a great thing to to give my father back, to let him know that this was what he had done to me, what I was carrying was not mine it was, it was something of his that I did not belong to me and I wanted to give it back to him. And, you know, I'd obviously done a lot of therapy uh, um, before that. But it was really a, a, an important thing to do. And at the end of it, though, we, we, you know, given Olive Branch, said, if you want to be in our lives, then we, are will we want you to be. But you have to make an effort. You have to, like, call us once in your life and be, you know, it's, it's got to be a two-way street. We can't just make duty calls duty visits to see you even though we don't want to you know we need to like if we're going to go anywhere with this we need to be able to talk about this in the future and try and you know put this behind us and blah 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 and he never got in touch with us ever again is that when you saw some emotion it was it that some tear 20 tear oh like i when at the end of that day when we were going back in the car tom and i i saw him walking away and i did see a tear in his eye and actually after that a bit that I didn't put in the book that hit the woman he was living with, um, who he lived with, you know, his partner after my mum, called my brother a few months later and said, you know, what happened that day with your dad? Because he's been looking for childhood photos, looking at childhood photos of you. And I actually thought it was in, in, a, in a funny way, it was, 
I was really glad, but it was kind of cruel as well because I thought, oh, he's going to, he's going to, you know, he's going to come back and say, hey, you know, look, here's, we did have happy times and let's try and, I really thought there was something, some kind of rapprochement was going to happen and nothing happened. I mean, I guess he looked for happy photos and there weren't any. <laughs> it seems like, I mean, I know this book has helped other people who have faced this kind of history or are facing it even now. But how would you, it does come across a, a very strong message that you can't necessarily ever resolve this, that you can't ever come to some kind of resolution, conclusion. There, there was almost a sense that you, in a way the work is letting it be bad, as bad as it was. Yeah. Can you just address that idea of well, I think, closure? I think you can't expect rationality from an irrational person. You can't expect reason from an unreasonable person. You can't expect sense from a mentally ill person. And, you know, you, it's, you sort of think, why did my dad hit me? What was, was it? And you go, obviously, throughout my life, there's been various stages of that. When I was a little boy, I thought, it must be me, it must be my brother. And I thought, what do we do wrong? Why are we, is it because they're unhappy in their marriage? What is la la? You know, he, all these things. Ultimately, you're not, I mean, even when I did talk to him and say to him, and even the last conversation I had with him, it, I wasn't talking to a reasonable man. I wasn't talking to someone who could voice. He just didn't, he couldn't hear me. I mean, he, was, he didn't have a sort of a, drop of empathy and I think in a way that's interesting you know finding out more about him in a sort of psychological way his lack of uh, any um, care about what other people thought of him or, or how his behavior affected anyone anyone not just us but you know he was he had very public affairs he he was very such a bully to the people who worked for him he had no kind of um, you know most people have kind of you know certain emotions like uh, you know, remorse and uh, shame about certain things. He had none of those things. And that's, that's been really fascinating too. So when you have, when you're dealing with a person like that, you, you have to stand back and say, I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm going to have to just come to terms with that happened. I have to let him, I have to let that go and not, and you know, try and move on in my life and not let, and not let what happened to me be as negative as the energy I got from him. In terms of reconstructing some of those specific um, assaults, mm -hmm. it seems, you know, not only are you a good writer, but you're a detailed one. And if it was general, it wouldn't have the impact that it does. But it, it struck me that it meant you really had to go back, yeah. almost like viscerally, sensorily. Yeah. How hard was that, for instance, with the sheep shears or... Mm. What, did you really feel it again? Yeah, I mean, it was a, I mean, actually, I, I, there's a, the very start of the book is quite... A, you know, startling, violent um, thing where my dad cuts my, hairs, cuts my hair with these sheep shears and um, in a sort of mad rage. And I, I did that. And it was, I mean, in a funny sort of way, it's almost like you hypnotize yourself because I had to kind of think about that shed he dragged me into. And it's, that's a story that I have thought of, you know, I, I thought of a lot. There's a later one when I'm the thing with the trees I hadn't really thought about that for a long time. And I had, that was a really interesting thing when I was writing it. And over the time I went, kept going back to that bit, it was like, it was like, you know, adding more instruments to an orchestra or something, you know, kind of just more the noise of the rain and the light and, and the, the thing and the doves and the loft upstairs. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a weird kind of self-hypnosis, but it was, you know, it was a sort of, it was contained and it wasn't like, 
once I'd written, once I'd done that section, I would, could look at it quite objectively. But it was actually that section, especially I, my um, Carrie, my editor was sort of sort of pushed me to to do another section that was kind of quite violent, to sort of to do exactly what you said, not to be general and to be more for it to be more affecting. And I think she, she was absolutely right. I'm really glad I did that. How much did you worry about your persona? Is is kind of jolly, as yes. you know. Cheeky chat. <laughs> did you worry about just how are people? Am I going to sort of alienate my audience with this? Is it going to is it going to be too much? Is it going to shock? Is it or did you just say you know? I, I don't really care. worry about that sort of thing. I mean, I think I mean I, I, I what I I thought it would be shocking to people, but it's not. It doesn't change who I am. You know what I mean? It's just kind of. I felt and actually it was a, it, it was a good way. To, it was more people who know me were having a more holistic impression of who I am. I am this, I am a kind of cheeky chappy. I'm quite a fun, happy person, but this happened to me. And, you know, and this made is part of the man I am today. So I didn't worry about that. I worried more about how it would affect my mom and my brother. And just that, you know, the onslaught of being op so open about something would affect them because they're obviously so embroiled in the story and such a part of it. And they're not, you know, used to dealing with things. I mean, I was, when it, the book came out in um, October, I think, I was very anxious about just how that would be the sort of onslaught of people finding us out about me and being shocked and the press thing. And actually, you know, it was pretty intense. And I, But, you know, you, after a while, you kind of, after you've done it a few times, you kind of, it's not so, you know, upsetting. And actually you understand the value of why you're doing it. And it has been the most amazing thing to have told this story and to feel the... Initially for my mom and my brother, I saw very quickly how incredible it was for them. Because I think, you know, as much as you do therapy and you understand it's not you and you're dealt with someone who was really a dangerous, psychotic person and, you know, and you try to move on, there's still shame attached to abuse of any kind. That's really what, in a way, the abuser is most awful about, is that inflicting shame for their wrongdoings onto you. So I, so and I sort of saying this happened to us, we were the victims of this horrible thing. It's a big deal. And I, I was ready for it, but I was really anxious about how it would affect my mom and my brother. But actually I saw very quickly how they reveled in the, uh, uh, the, the, the fact that people understood and were glad and proud of them for, for, for being a part of this journey with me and telling the story. So that's been really amazing. And if anything, you know, if it, if it, even if it possibly could, it's brought us closer together. And then the second really amazing and, and surprising wave of feeling was about people who said to me, I've been able to talk to my father or I've been able to deal with things in my family because of you having this book and I'm buying this, I'm giving this to my dad for Christmas and then we're going to, you know, it's like today I was doing a signing and uh, people was like, I'm giving this to my mum for Mother's Day. I was like, oh, it's the perfect <laughs> gift. For Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. 
respect the customer. Never, ever stint on quality. Offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway, or visit zabars.com for mouth-watering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico, so there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. You know, I knew just in doing the research about you, I knew that you were famous, but almost not as famous as you are in the sense that it feels like what you were managing here was you, you, you now know how to deal with the press. You know how to deal with the people trying to track you down, take pictures of you, et cetera. But you were exposing your mom and your brother to that. And also it seems like your father was getting those visits years ago. I mean, it, so can you just describe what, how is the celebrity sort of already kind of a presence, I guess, in your family before you even did this book? Well, in a funny way, there's sort of another subplot of the book, which is about the press, actually. And they, bizarrely, were instrumental in the way that my father told me that I wasn't his son. Um, I've, you know, I've been, when I was, I was 20, when I left drama school, very quickly after that, I was pretty famous in Scotland. I was, you know, in this comedy double act. I was on a soap opera. I was kind of la la la, and so. And then I went, moved to London. I was kind of famous there. But then I moved, to, you know, and I moved to. So in a gradual way, it's got more and more and bigger and more intense. But the actual act of having, and you know, age twenty or twenty-one, and you're being asked about your family and your marriage and blah blah blah, and what you know, you've no. There are no lessons on how to deal with press, and the press are much more. Um, um, they're much more um, intrusive. intrusive in Britain uh, than they are here. Um, and they're pretty intrusive here. Uh, <laughs> but I've had situations where, you know, literally people going through my trash and in London and going to, and doorstopping people I was, friends of mine, my you know, ex-wife, my people I was um, asking my neighbours, going to my neighbours door and asking if they'd see me coming home at night with people. I mean, th literally horrible and that's the Daily Mail, which is wow. supposed to be, you know, Middle England's Bible. It's, it's the worst, horrible, horrible uh, uh, paper. And um, so that's the kind of, you know, I grew up in that environment where that was, when you were famous, it was like your fair game to be, uh, and it's not even for any reason. It's not like they were, you'd done anything. Uh, they just, they did, suddenly it was your turn to be scandal. Um, and then if you, you know, were with someone else who was famous or you got a divorce or blah, 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 then, you know, they just went nuts. So that happened. And then also like early on, you know, I, I, even around the time when I was having that kind of breakdown, I was still working and doing stuff and I had a TV show and blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I was very vulnerable and blah, blah. And I, I'd said that, you know, I didn't see my father, you know, what can you, I'm not going to lie. Um, and that kind of, you know, and then I tried to be I tried not to talk about it, but that invited speculation and coyness. And again, that's that sort of led me to my thing. And I have, as an older person, is like just in a way, being an open book means there's no speculation, there's nothing to fear. Um, and I, I, I actually, yeah, I wish I'd thought of that earlier on, but I didn't have the confidence to, to be an open book then. 
and I, you know, things were still unresolved for me. So um, my father, for example, <clears throat> there was a hideous newspaper called The News of the World that was uh, Rupert Murdoch's, I mean, really horrible. It's the one that all, all the big, you know, the lips and inquiry, and it's actually luckily, thankfully closed down now. Um, but they phone hacked people and terrible things. They went to my father's, like a remote Scottish country estate and camped outside his house um, because they had had a quote I'd said from a magazine here that was completely misinterpreted. And so they said, they said I was accusing him of sexual abuse. This is like 15 years ago. I wasn't and he had, he didn't. But that, you know, that was horrible. And I felt so bad. I, I, wasn't, I, hadn't, I wasn't in communication with him, but I felt terrible that that was in the front, you know, pages of a newspaper that all his friends would read. And he had no way of contacting me. He had no, he wasn't in my life at all. So, and also he didn't, my mum, you know, I was a bit more used to reporters would come, even to be nice, like I'd won some award, they would come, they would come to the door and try and get a quote from her. She, was, she understood how to deal with that. Whereas my father, because he had no contact with me, didn't. So I got an apology from the, not from the news of the world, because you, you can't, you couldn't. Uh, but from another, the one, the Daily Record, which is a Scottish newspaper that picked it up. But, you know, so I tried to protect my dad from that sort of stuff. But it was, it has been um, a big part of, you know, running alongside other things that happen to you as you get more well known. There's been a very negative thing. And obviously I, you know, I've, for, for those tabloid kind of sensational people, I, had a, I was, you know, estranged from my father. First I was married to a woman, then I was married to a man. And, you know, I'm obviously in their eyes quite sort of uh, good fodder. And yet, you know, you're in the middle of this, just trying to live your life and, you know, stay sane. How do you navigate it just generally? I, I read somewhere that you some, sometimes say, please don't take that picture or please erase that picture you just took of me in a restaurant. I mean, oh. when are you, what are, what are your lines, your boundaries? I think, um, I think I don't ever let anyone from the press in my home. But what about an average fan? When in my just, home? No, no. no. So <laughs> <laughs> that would be a no. Can I come? Uh, <laughs> Can I come over? No. Um, but I think if someone takes a, a picture of me when I'm eating or something, anything, I'd say, don't do that. You know, if you come and ask, and I don't want to, I think it's fair enough for me to say, and I'm very nice, I say, you know, I really don't want to have my photograph taken right now, or I'm eating, you know, maybe when I leave the restaurant. But then of course I feel totally self-conscious for the rest of the meal. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I think I, when I, in certain situations, I take pictures of people, sometimes I don't want to. I mean, like I've had things where I've literally been walking my dog and my dog's pooping and I'm picking up the poop. <laughs> and someone says, Alan, can I have a photo? And I'm like, I am picking up my dog's poop. And, then, and this guy went, oh, well, I'll walk you to the trash can. And um, stuff like that. And I, you know, and I, but I really don't like is when people take secret pictures of you, when you're like, they just snap you in, on the street or, you know, or like when you're, when you're eating and then you see it on social media that they've actually snuck a picture of you. I think that's really shabby. I really do. And I, and I, whenever anyone in my company would try and do anything like that to someone else, I'm very, very, I mean, I think, you know, go and ask them or, you know, just go over. I mean, then, and, and it's much, so much nicer if you go over and say, hello, you know, keep it brief though. Uh, you know, I'm a fan, can I have a photo or shake your hand. That's absolutely How does uh, Grant deal with your celebrity when you're together? Um, he's great. I mean, he's very protective of me. He's sort of, you know, he's got, he's also very tall. So he's got kind of a, 
He stands in front of me a lot. It's like I, security. I, I suddenly, as I, you suddenly move, and I realize someone over there is trying to take a picture, and he'll stand. And he he gets more. Sometimes he gets more um, angry. Not angry, but more irritated by it, <clears throat> because I think he feels like you know, come on, just. And sometimes it just. I mean, there's certain situations. I think when I go to like a a, a premiere or a you know a, a public event where I'm like the guest of honor, blah, 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 duh, you know, of course, take my photo, that's what I'm there for. <clears throat> but when I'm just out in my own time and in a, in a private thing, I, I don't think it's appropriate. And especially if I say, you know, if someone comes over, I'm in a bar or something and say, can I have a photo? I go, you know what, it's nice to meet you, but if you take a photo, the flash will go off, everyone will look and they'll, and my whole night will just be taking photos of people and I'm just here relaxing with my friends. I think that's perfectly fair and kind and, and that should be enough. And sometimes people don't accept that. And then, you know, what do you do? You've got yeah. this irate person shouting at you, saying you're an asshole in a, in a bar, and you're just trying to go out. So what, but I refuse to just do what I think people do, you know, what Los Angeles is designed for, is that you just stay in your house and you never go out and you never actually, you know, my, one of the things I want to be, I want to, I am a human being, I'm a person who needs contact, I want to see what's going on in the world. I refuse to be pushed into not, um, experiencing life because of that. So I actually am more than most people, I actually, you know, confront those situations and say, I don't want to. And I think that should be enough. I don't know if you <clears throat> want us to reveal what the outcome is. We don't have to. I don't but, think you should. Okay. Can you say how you felt when you learned, when you were told that you were not your father's son, when you got that, that message from Tom? <clears throat> no, he was actually, Tom was there. He came to my house and told me. I was, I, and the thing, what happened was, that he lives in Southampton in England and he, through a series of weird circumstances, including a journalist going to my, this is in 2010, right before I was about to do the, who do you think you are? A journalist went to my, a journalist, that's <laughs> being very kind, uh, a reporter or, uh, you know, an employee of <laughs> a, a Sunday tabloid went to my father's house and my father was dying of cancer at the time and went to, went to his house, found him and went to his house. And that, early that week, I'd known someone was looking for him because my mum told me they'd been to his house. So through a series of weird, weird circumstances, he actually wasn't there to find, to, to, he hadn't found out about the fact that, you know, that my dad was saying I wasn't his son. But, but my, my dad called my brother screaming and my brother thought that he was in his car and he thought that was what it was because he, he knew he was about to tell me. He was going to wait till I was back in New York. But... He called me because he thought they were going to, I was going to find out via the press. Mm -hmm. So my brother called me and said, I've got to talk to you right now. And I said, what's wrong? And he went, I, it's, I said, is this something, because I thought, are you, are you, is it your health? Are you unwell? And is it, you know, is it your marriage or blah, blah, blah. And then I said, is it about that reporter that was looking for dad? And he went, it's all come to a head, Alan. That's what he said. And then, and he, so at the end he had to get from Southampton to London, which took like two and a half hours. And I was just going, what is, I thought something, I thought, has my dad died? What's that, something with Grant? As a, I was shooting a thing in South Africa at the time and I, I thought, have they followed me there? Because what's, you know, it was just, my mind was just racing. So by the time he got there, I was so anxious. I actually had this anxiety attack. And, and, and I went up on the roof of my flat and that's when, and, and he was crying and it was just awful. And I was like, please, just, you've got to tell me. I'm just, my, and he told me, and I, 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 I did this thing, which I, did when I found out about the Russian roulette as well. I just went, I th my body just 
kind of pushed itself away from this news. It's a really good reaction when you've got something terrible happen to you, actually. But I just, I fell over this bench and downstairs, my two friends who were living in my flat, they thought we were having a fight because they heard all this clanking. And, and, I, and I, I actually thought I was um, going to have a heart attack. I, 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 was, I, I was kind of doing this to kind of keep my heart inside my body. I mean, it's a little overdramatic, I suppose, but, <laughs> but that's what I felt. It was beating so hard and I felt like it was going to just burst out of my body. I was so, you know, anxious and stressed and couldn't believe it. It was just incredible. And it was the, also, it was the last thing I, I possibly, all the crazy, awful things I thought it might be, that was not it. And did it make any sense to you? Did it track in your mind when you started to replay this it made, possibility? It made a lot of sense in terms of the way my father treated me, yeah. You know, I, and that's what, in the conversations I had with him afterwards, he said. But then it didn't make sense when I thought, well, you know, what about Tom? He, it, but, but yes, it, made, it did make sense. But then it was just, the whole thing was so crazy. You know, the first night was just... You know, imagine Incredible. that you, you suddenly, age 45, your father tells you that. And he had an you know, incredibly detailed story about what had happened. And, and then I was like, why did, if, I thought if my mum has not told me this, there's a reason for that. And they probably made a pact and she's a very honorable person and he's not. And so I want to just get everything absolutely, totally sure and totally, in, you know, kind of calm in my head before I speak to her about it. And I'm really glad I did, as it turned out. So this book came out in the fall. Yeah. You were shooting The Good Wife during the day and doing cabaret at night. Mm-hmm. It's a busy fall. It's a busy year. It went, it went sort of for about 95 days where I didn't have a single day off. Like in, in, wow. in I know it wasn't good. And how was, how was the balance of, for instance, doing the TV in the daytime and the show at night? Um, well, you know, I don't work every day on The Good Wife, so that was good. And they would usually do it on, on like, I had Monday off from the show. So so mostly do my, I'd have big days on Monday and Tuesdays, but not always. It's Fridays tended to be a big day as well. It was just, it was hard, you know, but I, I just, I just napped. I'm a very good napper. <laughs> so, but then when the book came out, so on my days off, I would be going, I'd every, in my contract, I had every other Monday and Tuesday off from The Good Wife. So it meant I was supposed to get, every other weekend from the show off. So I'd have like a rest once a, every two weeks. But then the book happened and so I had to go, do, go to different places on the book tour and my weekend, weekend off. So that, it was, it was a lot. But I was, I'd girded my loins for it and I, <laughs> I you know, I, I managed it and, and um, I got a little chest infection for a while. And it was, you know, every, that, that sort of change of the season time into winter when everyone at the theatre was getting sick and, I got sick and it was, I was flying all the time. So there was a spell of about a month or six weeks where I was pretty, you know, I was pretty low. But it sounds like you don't just go home and go to sleep. The, the Times talked about you being the consummate host on Broadway. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, I had, you know, my dressing room was called Club Coming and, and uh, it's, I, Club Coming's this thing now. It's like... Everybody gonna, wants to go. Every, yeah, and it still is a thing. Like I'm, after the Tonys, I'm having a Club Coming after party and... And Fish's Eddie, you know, for that store yeah. in Union Square, they're doing a range of com club coming glasses and trays and, and all that drawings. Grant, my husband's an illustrator. He drew all the little, all of fun. me dancing around the thing. Um, what happens at the club or what? It's, it's not so crazy. I just, you know, we, I play music, we dance, have a little sing. I have soup. On Wednesday nights, I'd make soup in a crock pot all day on the matinee days. And you make it in your dressing room? In my dressing room. So you bring all the ingredients? Yeah. Actually, my intern would chop it. That became the thing because I was so busy. I would, I would direct the soup. 
And then uh, throughout the day, I would, you know, see. So it's like a slow cooker? Yeah, just... slow cooker. So I love, I'm, I'm obsessed with slow cookers now. I think so they're just the best believer. thing. Because you can leave it all day long, you know. What's just... like one of the ones, you, what's one of the standards? I would do, like, I'm vegan, so I do a really good vegan chili. And uh, there's another thing called Stovies. It's a, it's a hearty Scottish potato heavy dish. And then lots of different soups. Like I did, you know, creamy, coconut creamy mushroom things and. Oh, lots, all kinds. I just made them up out of my head. And then, you, would, you know, everyone, would, and I, uh, Campari America, they own all these different brands like Sky Vodka. And I, I got, bizarrely got this kind of sponsorship deal with them and they <laughs> supplied all the booze for an entire year for my dressing room. So I just like cases really and cases fun. of booze would arrive and I'd just have free booze all the time for everybody. And so that's why it became, I mean, if I'd had to pay for all the booze that everyone drank, I'd be, I wouldn't have made any money from the show. But it was great because they, you know, I, they got kind of, they became associated with it they got press from it and it was actually a really good kind of you know team and it made a great thing for the whole company everyone would come up and nice. guests would come and and then towards the end it became known as this thing and everyone was trying I, it was kind of like the old studio 54 because i'd go out to sign autographs and people were like i think i'm coming i'm coming i'd sort of ignore people pretend i hadn't heard them because it was too painful to sort of say no do you miss the show no <laughs> i don't was I miss, it? I miss, like, I miss seeing everyone so regularly. But I've, you know, I've kept in touch with people, and uh, since it's what six weeks or so now, I, I, I don't. I mean, I'm very, I'm not a, I'm, not, I'm always on to the next thing. You know, I think I'm very, I very live in the moment person. I have, I think, on the last day, of, I, towards the end of it, I could feel people getting that panicky of, oh my God, I can't believe it's over. And whenever anyone says that on a job, I always, I always think, did you not read the contract? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> of course it's over. Uh, but there's a thing that um, Dr. Seuss said this thing, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. And I think that's, that's a really great. great thing, you know, to live by that you, obviously, especially when you're an actor and you have a job that's lots of little things that, you know, I mean, The Good Wife's a crazy thing because we're going into the seventh season. That's the longest, right. but... Normally, it's a film, it's a few months, a play could be, you know, six months, whatever. But the, you're always changing. And so I think it's a really good um, attitude to have. And then I think it's great to just be like, give everything and be focused and be with those people. And I think as you get older, you realize you will see the people that you're meant to see. You will stay friends with people. And even if you don't see them very often, whenever you see them again, you will have that intense connection that you had from the, from the intense kind of you know, relationships you had in, in, in the, whatever you did with them. So I don't fear that anymore. I don't, and I think as you get older, uh, it's, it's less scary. How different was it to do the same part 16 years apart? Um, well, uh, it's kind of difficult to remember, to be honest. I mean, I, 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 I felt, I realized there is a thing called muscle memory because I felt it sort of all came back in my body. But I had, you know, I had to go back to the Lincoln Center Library to watch to the, the video of it from last time because I, I really couldn't remember much about it. And I kind of avoided it. I'd never listen. Whenever, like, it would come on in my iPad or some iPod, I would always switch it up forward. Or, and if I saw clips of it, so people had it, awards or things, you know, I'd always kind of not look. Not because I, I liked it, but I just didn't, I don't know. I, I didn't want to... I was onto something else. So anyway, I went back and I looked at it and that was exciting. And then it, obviously it was a whole new energy because of different people. And it's amazing just how much the chemistry of something can change with different people playing the roles. And I'm a I was a different person. I was 16 years older. So that was the difference in terms of, you know, things are, I noticed things more in my body. Uh, 
I turned 50 when I was doing it. So that was kind of, uh, I didn't think I'd be doing a kick line when I was age 50, to, to <laughs> tell you. What about the Sienna Miller, Natasha Richardson, this, this uh, Michelle Williams, having these stars come in? Was that kind of on some level irksome just because they were coming in because, I mean, obviously they were talented, but it was very much partly the marquee value and you had to kind of get a new rhythm with each of them? Or was that actually something exciting? Um, well, it was kind of exciting, you know, for, I mean, Natasha did it the, the, the first time around. And so this it started off this time around with Michelle Williams. And then uh, by the time Emma came in, it was actually, you know, she did it for like six months, Michelle, I think. Or nine months, I can't remember. But, uh, you know, a long, a long time. And then so by the time Mich uh, Emma came in, we were ready for a new energy. And it was actually quite exciting that, you know. And Emma had actually was wanted to do it originally and, and then uh, couldn't. And so it was a nice sort of closing of a circle for her. And she was so excited. And, you know, when she'd been a little girl, she'd come to, her mum had brought her to Cabaret when she was nine. And I, and I remember thinking, I would go out sometimes and be all like, you know, grabbing my crotch and thinking, why are there children in the front row? And one of them was probably Emma. And that made her want to be an actress and, and you know, made her obsessed with this that role. So that was a beautiful thing to see someone really living their dream, you know, in a, in a not a schlocky way. It really was her dream to do this. And, uh, and then, so that was great. And I mean, actually, um, my interaction with the Sally Bowles is very, was very small. You know, I, I had to go Sally Bowles a couple of times, really. I don't, <laughs> so it was quite easy for me to, their put-ins were very, I didn't have to rehearse much with them. I just 15 minutes before the first show I did it with. And then when Sienna came in, she's, she was great too. And she's an old, she's a kind of real old mucker. We were kind of like evil twins, evil party twins. So they were, they were di all different, but you know, really lovely, lovely girls. And, uh, it was it was it was actually exciting to to have new people, new energy come in. And you said that the first production was kind of more overtly sexual, and that that in a in a way was maybe a bit of a barrier. I don't think it was. I don't. That's not what I meant. No, I, okay. I, I what I felt was that when we did it the first time, I mean it was the same. We did the same things this time, but I think you know, 16 years ago, the idea of on a Broadway stage, uh, someone like me, this sort of weird European skinny boy touching himself and having red nipples and, you know, pretending to simulate sex with a boy and a girl in, in a song was very shocking uh, and it had not. So in a way, what I think was then it, that the, the newness of that and the, and, and the lack of familiarity with that sort of open sexuality clouded I think and the sense it sent the, the, the it was very sensational and I think that it was it was it clouded or overshadowed the kind of underneath darker message of the play and this time around we did the same thing but people are more used to that we're much more kind of you know we've, we moved on we're a little more worldly I mean I think it's really interesting I was talking about the Bruce Jenner uh, thing that he's you know transitioning to become a woman and I, I, I thought that was an amazing thing that it was a bigger story that he was a Republican rather than <laughs> that he was trans transitioning. I think that's a, we've come a long way. He obviously hasn't, though. Um, <laughs> Politically, I mean. I just want to touch on, since we're at the JCC, yes. on the fact that you play a, a Jewish character on The Good Wife. Um, and, I, and you've said that it's modeled on Rahm Emanuel. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, when they, you know, yeah. I mean, they told me when I first started it, that was the kind of the person they were, <clears throat> you know, a very um, tightly wound, uh, kind of blasphemous, ruthless uh, political with a kind of a, you know, Jewish and with a kind of, you know, I 
Eli's a former concert pianist. You know, Ram Manuel was a, a ballet dancer. So they they have similar kind of uh, kind of there's allusions to him anyway in the thing. I yeah. don't do an impersonation of him or anything, but I have heard he really likes it. Someone, someone, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but then also it's funny because his brother. The agent is, you know, the, in, in Entourage, Jeremy Piven played a version of his brother. And then I'm playing a, a version of him. And, I, and there's, there's two other siblings. And I think it must be funny at Thanksgiving. They must be like, oh, you're the ones who don't have anyone playing you on TV. <laughs> Your American accent, I mean, it's pretty solid. Thanks. <laughs> Just as well. Can you answer me in that? No. <laughs> But you do a lot of American accents. I've done, I've done, you know, I'm an actor and I do different voices and I, I've played, I mean, it's just, I think since The Good Wife, because it's, it's so regular and people have, it's been on for such a long time, I think it's become more of a thing that it's not such a big deal. You know, a lot of people do accents and when you're an actor. But it could accent, sound wrong. It could sound. It could sound bad. But, you know, I, yeah. But um, <clears throat> I, I've always had a good ear, you know, because I'm. A singer as well, I think that helps when I do accents because I really, and also sometimes there are difficult accents that you have to study more and vowel signs and things like that. But, you know, be, when I was at drama school, being Scottish, I was told then, kind of an archaic sort of way, that I would never work unless I, you know, learned how to speak in RP, receive posh English, basically. So from the word go, I had to learn how to lose my accent and, and do another accent and learn and, and, and with my ear. Um, understand how to do that. So it's been something I've always done. And I think, in, I think in Britain, you know, we are bombarded by American culture much more than the other way around. Like 95% of the films in, in cinemas are American. That's not the case this way around. There's not 95% of British uh, films here. So more people are exposed to the, the American accent and idiom than the other way around. That's why I think, you know, everyone goes, oh, why aren't American actors so good at doing English accents and British actors are better? That's why. Mm -hmm. It's not such a big thing. I mean, really, I think of, uh, I've done lots of other accents that I think are more noteworthy than, than Eli's. But okay. I'm, thank you. I was should, should Very good. That, yeah. I'm just going to end with a quote that stuck with me that Alan has said before um, that I think we can all, it resonates, at least for me. He said, I can access the darkness, but I choose to live in the light. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Alan Cumming talking to Abigail Pogerman. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Our music was written and performed by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes.